Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best. So I can help you become your very best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. You know, our hospitals and paramedics are stretched thin. So any relief of pressure is a blessing. And that's why Dr. Andrew Buzeri created a new center to help treat the homeless who are intoxicated and why the surrounding community loves the initiative. And a lot of the Gen Zers, they're unhappy with their appearance and they're getting plastic surgery at very young ages. But if they aren't satisfied with the inside, then how did changing the outside be any real help? Anyway, Kenzie Brenna, she's a body positive influencer. She sits down with me to try and make sense of it all and reminds listeners, self-love is the only way to truly be happy with yourself. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help you be at your best. I want to start off uh, this evening, uh, first segment. It kind of caught me. I was sitting with my wife and my kids the other day, and uh, we happened, my, my son, my, one of my sons happened to catch, uh, they're grown adults, by the way, they just came to visit. Um, and one of my sons caught on the news that a BC company had been given the green light to sell cocaine. I look at him, he looks at me and he goes, well, I guess, you know, we're going to be ordering cocaine online on the BC, you know, on the BC site, kind of joking around about it, started thinking about it and started to feel like it wasn't such a great idea. So I, we, you know, got into a little bit, started to kind of look at the story, understand a little bit what it came from. Um, one of our colleagues from Global News um, put it to put an article together we wanted to take a look at and we did but you know as far as cocaine is concerned it's one of those drugs that you know um, i'd be lying to say that i didn't uh, try it i didn't actually uh, i had an experience where probably i lost a week or two of my life uh, to a bag of blow uh, as they say uh, but not a great drug i mean for me it was horrible it was just a bunch of paranoia and and just didn't want to see anybody talk to anybody and so on and i actually found that after talking to a whole bunch of people that had cocaine problems over the over the years i've been doing this People that are hyperactive and would normally be on something like a you know Ritalin back in the day or Vivance today, they did okay on cocaine, uh, especially if they were snorting it. It's a big difference, right, between snorting it, shooting it, sticking a needle in your arm, that is, or smoking it, which um, once you've smoked this stuff, <clears throat> excuse me, they say you never come back. So, you know, it's a function of being... Um, <clears throat> Understanding the drug, I think, a little bit better if cocaine is something that you have any interest in at all, I suggest probably uh, <clears throat> not something you need to participate in. I, I, I don't see the benefit of it. I guess people that party say it's a great party drug. Uh, but if it's easily psychologically addictive. So looking at this whole process uh, in this article about Sunshine Earth Labs, it's a bioscience company in Victoria. Uh, Health Canada has granted them three amendments in the past seven months to include the, pr the, the production of M MDMA, right, uh, party drug, cocaine or coca leaf, opium, morphine, and um, they're now able to sell that into their as part of their dealer license. So <clears throat> who are they dealing this drug to? So they've been pursuing, according to the article here, they've been pursuing an amendment to their dealer's license for quite some time. Um, and there was a heated debate in the BC legislature over uh, commercialization of the drug. Uh, but understand that this doesn't mean you're now going to be able to, in, in BC, 
order you know order a uh, an amount of cocaine that the government allows you to use uh, recreationally or for whatever reason uh, you know it's it's cocaine is not one of those drugs that I see people using often um, especially if they're snorting it they're using it often um, because they have you know when you're when you're when you're smoking it or you're shooting or you're sticking a needle in your arm you're, you're intravenously using it shooting it as they say uh, the withdrawal is horrible the uh, detox from it is horrible. Uh, the addictive pro- properties are horrible. But when you snort it, not so much, right? So guys and people that, you know, do a couple of lines, as they call them, on the weekend, it's one thing. But that's not who these people are manufacturing this this drug for. They're having the ability to sell it to uh, specific a specific market. But on Friday, Trudeau went crazy. He was surprised. He says his B. Not crazy. He's already crazy. Uh, he was as surprised as BC Premier David Ebby to hear the granted amendment to Adastra Labs by Health Canada. Uh, he says, "I was surprised as the Premier of British Columbia was to see that a company uh, <clears throat> was talking about selling cocaine on the open market or commercializing it." Uh, Trudeau said on Friday. Well, I mean, you know, uh, he's also wondering if the intention of Health Canada was given the granting these licenses, especially the company that significantly misrepresented the nature of the license. Anyway, goes on and on and on. Uh, but they have the ability, uh, Health Canada reiterated, the permission to sell will only be allowed to other licensed holders who have a cocaine listed on their license, who are pharmacists, hospitals, or holder of a Section 56-1 exemption for research purposes. Health Canada thoroughly reviews applications and so on and so on, right? So I start looking at this, trying to figure out, okay, so they're manufacturing cocaine, which is interesting because, you know, it's typically grown, you know, coca leaves are grown in a damp, you know, remote, dark, you know, kind of, not dark, but kind of jungle-ish environment that you've all seen movies where, Cocaine seems to be manufactured as part of the movie. But have a listen to uh, Rick James. What, what does he say about cocaine? Leo, run this real quick, would you? Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah, he had a big problem with it. Everybody's had a big problem with it because, you know, it's it's the drug you use to, you know, on the road, is, right? But so interestingly enough, there are medical uses for this drug. By the way, I, I'm just blown away by the process. Um, don't understand where this is going, why we have to be growing cocaine in British Columbia. And where does this go as it, as it sort of matches to the decriminalization of, of drugs in, um, in uh, British Columbia? We'll get there in a minute. Medical uses, though, uh, according to the research here, the medical uses are specifically... Uh, let me see here. Uh, medical use could go add into wine. Add it was added into wine preparation. So mu- much of the cocaine is used for is used for legal recreation. Cocaine is a very well known drug. Um, it's grown countries of South America. We know all that. But uh, cocaine has a very high toll on society as a chronic use and can be cause various health problems. However, even today there are medical applications for cocaine. The pharmaceutical actions of cocaine are to decrease the re- uh, reuptake of uh, monamine, which are neutral uh, transmitters, including dopamine, uh, norfamine, and serotonin. The decrease of uh, this decreasing results in more activity at, the, at those receptors. So topical applications of cocaine as an anesthetic. It's used in nasal surgery um, or other forms of uh, um, 
lacrimal duct surgery. Cocaine blocks voltage gauge sodium channels. By doing so, it blocks the pain signals from reaching the brain, therefore preventing the brain from experiencing pain. Uh, another drug that acts the same is uh, there's another uh, procaine is also a drug that does the same. Anyway, uh, cocaine is used uh, can also be used as a diagnostic test to evaluate someone's um, uh, pulpillary reaction. Cocaine is also used to diagnose Horner's syndrome by putting drops into the eye. When cocaine is introduced into the eyes, it causes the pupils to dilate in a normal pa uh, patient. However, when a pa person has Horner's syndrome, their pupils will not dilate. Because cocaine still has medical applications, it's classified as a Schedule II drug under the Controlled Substances Act. Drugs classified under Section Two, Schedule II have a very high addictive uh, potential, right? So compare this with Section One drugs. Using cocaine medically has downsides. It's well known that cocaine is a, a symptomimetic, uh, meaning that it can trigger uh, sympathetic nervous system reaction or activity. Um, so on one is this, it has such limited use. I'm trying to understand who they're manufacturing it for. We're going to get to a conversation here with um, a really special guy. I think he's a physician in Toronto here, executive director of social medicine at the University Health Network. Uh, they have several hospitals here that they're involved with. But it talks about a uh, in an inconspicuous downtown building, several, several inebriated homeless people are sobering up. Supports are offered through this premises, and it's... Uh, Instead of beating, instead of the night in a drunk tank or an ambulance, run to emergency department in nearby Toronto Western Hospital. People are getting support. Late December, late in December, the University Health Network pulled out a lot of bureaucratic strings to quietly launch the Stabilization and Connection Center in a neighborhood where the homeless population struggled daily to cope with complex social needs. For the unhoused, addiction, and in many cases, underlying mental illnesses, because they go together for sure, right? It's like uh, peanut butter and jam, they go together. And our common denominators, warm beds where they're, when they needed fear, fear uh, where they didn't need, warm beds where they need not fear assault or uh, having their merchant, any of their stuff damaged, possessions of anything taken away. 24-hour operation, 11 beds staffed by harm reduction experts, social caseworkers, peer support angels, and a physician on call. So the healthcare workers and emergency departments, as we all know, are working way past their, um, their due date, so to speak, uh, working hard, long hours, um, and perhaps, you know, when you deal with a homeless person who's struggling, may not have the greatest amount of patience that day to deal with it. Not, I'm not, I'm suggesting that my friends and brothers and sisters in health and health, uh, healthcare services aren't doing the very best job that they can do, but sometimes it can be overwhelming. And, you know, a homeless person who you really can't affect much change with is, you know, it's, it's difficult. It can be, you can be draining. I've done that kind of work in the crisis center before, and it's rewarding when it works, but it's hard when you don't really have any place else to send them. I want you to listen to my guest. His name is Dr. Andrew Boozeri. Um, very cool guy, and uh, listen to what he has to say about this program that we're going to talk about. He's going to join us, join us here in just a sec to chat. Uh, reality is that uh, that wait for a patient uh, to get to a bed is about five to seven hours. Uh, and it's, again, for people who do not have acute medical uh, needs, it's for people who you know, have had alcohol intoxication in whichever setting, but what we've seen more likely and more frequently is that it's for people who do not have, you know, access to housing or who are sleeping outside and sleeping rough. 
Yeah, we uh, appreciate uh, that he's joining us. Dr. Andrew Boozery, thank you for being with us tonight. Um, doctor, you're with me there, yep? Yeah, here with okay, you on perfect. Saturday night. Appreciate yeah, the Yeah, per- oh, my pleasure. Listen, it's hard to find friends this late at night in Toronto on a Saturday <laughs> night, but I'm glad you're here. Um, and by the way, I'm a big fan. I follow you a lot. Uh, watch the work that you do and, and some of your news uh, news releases and such. I'm, I'm really impressed, and uh, kudos to yeah. you and your teams for sure. Um, but right. the question is, like, when I when I was a, a kid and I was going through, you know, my addiction counseling program and social work and all that, uh, I did a stint at the Addiction Research Foundation, which is now, as you know, part of CAMH. And we used to right. take, um, you know, methadone and, and medications out to people that were essentially homeless in some of the burnt-out buildings along Pembroke and, you know, down in that part of the Tenderloin parts of the city in those days. It's an awfully long time ago. Um, um, and, you know, we're constantly dealing with people who are homeless, who were, you know, in those days, melting shoe polish to get the alcohol out of it or others, you know, ways that they could get alcohol from any way, shape or form. And, but they, you know, they were homeless sleeping in, 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 in places that weren't um, properly structured for someone to live in. Um, but they were very grateful that we could be there. And I'm just thinking, doctor, that this opportunity to help somebody in that first, as you talk about in your in your little uh, clip there that we had, um, it's those three, four, five, six hours when you're either coming down or you're in the peak of your of your high or your buzz from alcohol. That's a really a very difficult time to manage, and that seems to be when you're catching them. Um, how did you come to this? Like, how did you create the stabilization and connection center? And what was the pushback like? It had to be immense. Well, I, I mean, and, you know, and, and very kind in your comments and, you know, redoubling them back for all the work that you've been doing in early in your career. I mean, I think, you know, one, I think to start with how we came uh, to this kind of conclusion or try to push this uh, kind of system solution. I mean, one, communities have been pushing for this for a really long time, right? I mean, people who, who like you have been doing this work early on who have seen the way that our uh, system and our hospital system was never really designed to deal with uh, the the real challenges of substance use, but also you know trying to bring human dignity to the way we deal with substance yeah. use. And there's always yeah. been these uh, biases and stigma to hatred of people who use drugs or people who drink uh, alcohol. And I think you know we've never really designed the system um, to better embrace the kind of supports that people need, as you mentioned, when they're either, you know, more acutely intoxicated or, you know, they're looking for a different way and a different um, kind of recovery path. So one, I think the the big piece that we try to do and really see as my role of the last few years, and especially the pandemic, is you're kind of being at the intersection of hospital and community. So how can you uh, really try to learn from the innovations that happen in community and a lot of the, the voices um, to do this work, um, to how do we how do we start to to really bring that together? And that's kind of what we've done with some of our community partners, uh, the neighborhood group, Inner City Health Associates, Parkdale Queen West Community Health Center. The fortunate thing is we've been working together now for three or four years since the beginning of the pandemic when we had to lift up a COVID recovery hotel for people who were yeah. surviving homelessness. So we were able to yeah. do this really quickly um, because there's already that kind of trust between our organizations. And of course, and we can get to the the second part of the question, I mean, around the pushback. I mean, there's all this inertia, there's all this uh, system obstruction to how we try to do things differently and especially differently for people who are already marginalized. 
Uh, but that's where we needed the collective leadership, and there's leadership from UHN, but from community partners, um, and the paramedic leadership. I mean, again, the EMS and uh, paramedic leadership was yeah. fantastic to try to push this through together as well. So really kudos all around. But I think there was a history of trust in having to kind of push through together uh, through the last three years. Basically, you were talking in your in your clip, doctor, about the current treatment plan for those suffering from homelessness who are now found intoxicated. Um, what what does that treatment plan look like? We've got a couple of minutes. Yeah, well, well, really, I think the the major shift in this, and it goes back to the first question, is you know how would we design this differently? And what was really clear is that, especially through our experience in the COVID recovery hotels, is that the the real staples and the real backbones of some of the healthcare delivery pieces are peer workers, are people who have yeah. uh, lived experience, who yeah. have the trust of communities, who um, have a number of skill sets in being able to provide the kind of supports from harm reduction to counseling to helping people navigate the system. Uh, and really that kind of accompaniment that we're talking about for peer workers and community health workers, who I think are really Critical. Uh, the future, critical, yeah. crucial, and yeah. the future yeah. of healthcare delivery. When we're talking about teams, yeah, and yeah. so I think they really pivotal, and, and so they are really the the central piece of this new care model as a stabilization and connection site. And what's really novel about this is that the paramedic teams, I think, to the clip earlier. Uh, I won't ask where you got these clips, but I think when we got the, <laughs> the drop off of the you know paramedics yeah. to yeah. Uh, the ambulance crew to the the emergency department. Uh, as was mentioned, it was about usually five to seven hours. Just to show the efficiency, it's about eight to 10 minutes now with over 100 admissions. Stabilization and connection center. And I think what this has really been about is the story of partnership and how we can deliver preferential uh, care and options for people who have either been shut out of the system, uh, have alcohol intoxication, and are not requiring urgent medical care or acute medical care, uh, but end up having to wait seven or eight hours with paramedics. Uh. There we go. That's uh, welcome back. Your uh, that's the uh, voice of my guest, Doctor Buzeri. He's joining us this evening. He's on the other line, Doctor Buzeri. Thank you for sticking around. Um, I want to finish the conversation. We cut you off part way. Sorry, just uh, you know, yeah. a hard out. No hard worries. out when it's. When it's national, it's a hard out because everybody's going to jump in. Uh, but um, let's continue the discussion around the treatment plan. You were talking about peer support, and I'll, I'll have you know yeah. in all of our in all of my practices, both uh, in home, um, outpatient, and the residential stuff that we run and operate, uh, peer support's a huge part of it. Um, obviously, yeah. trained peer support. All of our guys, I'm sure yours too, have some form of certification and such. But trained peer support is is as good as any therapy you're going to get out there because when you can connect and they and you can tell someone how they feel because you've been there and felt it too, it's huge, right? Yeah, I mean that's what we can't cut short. I mean, is the the real merits of the peer support and uh, the peer and community health workers that are on site and are doing the work across the country and in the city. And I mean, I think. Uh, there's nothing like it. You know, I think it makes all the difference in the connection and trust that's in place and uh, the accompaniment that takes place uh, along the journey beyond their stay in a stabilization center or in the hospital or in a primary care clinic. Uh, what peer and uh, workers and community health workers you know, throughout the, the country are doing. Uh, again, I, I was saying earlier, I, uh, I'm adamant that this is the future of healthcare delivery. And we're talking about health and social care together. And they're, they're such a pivotal piece. 
Yeah, you know what? I, I got to tell you that, um, and, and the bureaucrats need to understand too, that peer support workers are, uh, frankly, I don't want to sound cold, but less costly than an addiction counselor, social worker, uh, you know, uh, RPN, some kind of nurse practitioner, uh, certainly doctor, uh, doctor's care. Uh, but not because, you know, they're, it's not that they're less expensive because they're less valuable. It's just it's an education thing and so on. Um, so it's very cost effective and very, very effective in terms of the care opportunities opportunity it provides. Um, and I think that uh, what, what we need to do more of, and I think you're on top of it, is recognizing that when you provide a peer with a peer support opportunity, it also improves their life. It gives them another purpose. It gives them a reason. Like my peer support workers that work for us, uh, they'll say it all the time. And it works for me too with my own mental health. Doing the work that we do every day keeps us on the straight and narrow as well. So it's like a double up, right? You're helping the people you're helping that are in acute acute need of, of care at the time. But those that provide the peer support are also getting a bump up, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it cuts, you know, across this in so many ways, which you've, you've laid out. And I... I've just been, you know, continue over the last many years uh, to be so impressed. I think these are the the best teams on the ground. I think there's a connection, there's a trust, as I mentioned, that you can't really replace or you can't, you should, you know, never undervalue or discount. And I think, uh, you know, if there was any uh, question of that, um, again, you know, community health ambassadors and peer workers were the uh, real heroes in the COVID-19 vaccine rollout and um, all of the work that's been happening over the last year. So, you know, really, I think when it goes back to the question around, you know, how this all came together, I think it's also further recognizing and uh, embracing peer workers and community health workers as bona fide members of healthcare teams. And uh, they're definitely uh, the, the crucial piece of the stabilization center. Uh, doctor, is there is it just an alcohol thing, or someone shows up there? You know, uh, you know, I've I have worked in in in, in uh, detox centers and such. Um, you know, it's difficult to work with somebody, and I think the fact that you're doing this with some kind of medical support is so huge because often it's you know just a, a function of maybe uh, some a little bit of you know sleep it off a little bit. Sometimes they're in need of some form of short term medication, maybe a benzo or something if they're in really bad shape, uh, but. What about people who are having a, a, a drug issue as well, like other substances yeah. beyond just alcohol? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, one, you know, I, I think to your point about the medical oversight, I think it's great with inner city health associates and uh, University Health Network to have that on-call overnight, 24-hour yeah. uh, access. You know, again, if there is some concern or questions for people who are, again, these are really not to be acute medical cases, or if there's any question yeah. around the vital signs in the ambulance or head trauma, uh, those patients go directly to the emergency department. Again, this is really, we started this again out of safety and knowing that this is a pilot with very stringent criteria around alcohol intoxication. Uh, but actually you. over the last week, we've expanded it to opioid uh, overdose and ingestion as well. And Brilliant. we've seen an increase in the volumes. And again, you know, we, we cannot, uh, duck the overdose crisis and the toxic yeah. drug supply crisis where we've seen the height of deaths in 2021 in Ontario and I know across the country. Um, and I think that's something that we have, have added. And again, the teams are the ones on the ground who are pushing to want to you know, better address and respond to the uh, overdose crisis as well.
Yeah, it's just a natural. It just it seems like such a natural uh, fit, and, and certainly, you know, perhaps even more life life saving uh, at the moment in time. Eleven beds, Doc, is you know like kind of like just yeah. a, a drop in the ocean, right? Um, obviously, you have plans for this thing to blow up. I know who I know you. I know your reputation. You're not a guy that's going to settle with eleven beds, beds maybe eleven hundred beds eventually. But uh, where's this going for you and for your teams? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> You know, I, I, you know, I, I got you right though, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you, 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 uh, you know, on Saturday night, you try to catch me on we're realizing, you know, some of the frustrations that of course we need to do more, you know, and it's not about yeah. Uh, yeah. any personal yeah. ambition. It's really yeah. about to your point that, you know, yeah. 11 beds are not going to, uh, this is this, this stabilization center is not going to end homelessness. It's not going to address the substance use crisis, the overdose crises that, we're seeing compounding and play out throughout the city and the country. What I am hopeful about, and I think this is, again, where uh, there's a lot of promise, is that other cities have already reached out and have either come through or have had uh, some really in-depth visits and conversations with our teams about scaling this in different cities. And that's where I, I'm really encouraged. I mean, that's what we are really hoping to see. And, you know, whether it's you know, potentially London or uh, Hamilton or Thunder Bay, you know, other areas. Uh, o- Ottawa has had a, a very successful program with Jeff Turnbull and Wendy Muckle. Yeah. Um, if, yeah. There, if there are ways to see different cities pick this up and obviously tailor it to their local needs and also the, the strengths that they have in, in various settings, um, that's something where I feel like that's obviously going to be well beyond our team but that's exactly what we're hoping for and however we can help with that um we're 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 having those conversations you know you you did downplay the fact that it's nothing you know it's nothing personal and you know it's it's uh it's a function of uh, the requirements and everyone else involved and i know that that's that's where you stand and that's the kind of guy you are but you know you and i both have to recognize that it takes people like yourself and, and again you don't have to take a bow that's not what it's intended for but it takes people like yourself at your best trying to make a difference trying to carve out a better way a different way i mean the last thing you need i'm sure in your life in your practice is you know you know 24 hour calls in the middle of the night for this kind of stuff but i get that that's what drives you and it's not about you i get it but someone has to be at the at the forefront and um i'm, I'm glad it's you uh i'm hopeful that uh, that it will be infectious and it will spread across the country spread across the gta and i'm sure it will there's a lot of brilliant uh, care workers out there and, and and community folks that are out there doing some great work across uh, the streets of uh, in you know in, in manitoba and saskatchewan alberta bc's got their hands full but some pretty uh, forward thinking docs out there too so it's it's you know totally. don't downplay the fact that it takes a great leader to put it together too i just want to let you know that you know this is about you know show about people at their best and and kind of profiling you that a little bit we got one more uh time for maybe like a half a half an answer here um can we get you back can we get you back uh maybe every month or two just if you don't mind just to kind of give us an idea where you're coming from with this program and what we can do to help uh that would be great and um i'd like to volunteer so if you can reach me after the show i'm a i'm a you know i have you know diplomas and all that stuff so glad to oh, glad to maybe volunteer an evening or something to help out i just love it i think it's amazing i think your team is amazing and uh, i'm excited to have you share this with us tonight and uh, anything we can do in terms of my profile across the country whatever uh, count on us for that kind of support uh, something you want to say to people before you let them go in 30 seconds 
Well, well one, you know, I mean, that, that means a lot, you know, coming from, from you. Uh, and really, obviously, I think uh, you got me emotional in my feelings tonight with your very kind words. But really, it's, it's, it's not lip service. This really is going to be a collective response. And I'm fortunate yeah. for the role I'm in to try to push this work uh, with, with our partners. But, you know, really, I think my hope is, like you're saying, across the country, there's so many folks who've been pushing at this for years. And I think we can try to pull together and offer each other these supports because these spaces can be very lonely as well. So I appreciate the conversation on Saturday night and all your work in amplifying uh, the voices across the country and uh, looking forward to the ongoing conversation. If you think you're depressed, you know, see a doctor and talk to them about medication and also be healthy. Eating right and exercise can make a huge difference. And finally, if you're in the cast of a late night comedy show, it might help if they, you know, do more of your sketches. I'm sorry, wait, are you saying that you're depressed because you're not getting enough airtime? Oh, no, 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 I was uh, born depressed, but it might make me feel better <laughs> if I was on TV more. There you go, uh, Pete Davidson, um, sharing uh, some light, some lightness on the, a little bit of light on the, or uh, lightening up. Maybe I'm not sure how to come at this when I'm coming, softening the uh, concept of depression and such. But it is no laughing matter. It's certainly not a joke. Uh, and um, glad you could be here with us to chat about this kind of stuff. Um, how do you feel? Kids are taking care. You know, young people are taking care of themselves mentally. I'd like to hear from you. Eight seven seven three nine nine. Nine eight nine eight eight seven seven three nine 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 eight nine eight. How are young people supposed to take care of themselves? Get the kind of help they need if they don't have the money that they need to get the kind of services and support. Well, that's what this whole article is about. Here, it's about a conversation about how young Canadians are taking care of their mental well-being on a budget. So, nearly one in four Canadians rank money as their top form of stress. By the way, I would suggest adults these days as well. Nearly twice as much as personal health, work, or relationships according to Financial Post's 2022 Financial Stress Index survey. Amazing how they come up with these surveys. Canadian dollar coins are displayed in Montreal Friday, January 30th, blah, blah, blah. The Canadian press uh, goes on to say, uh, it's no secret that financial stress can take a toll on your mental health, especially at a time when Canada's inflation rate remains high, layoffs are making headlines, and there's talk of all this looming financial crises. Nearly one in four Canadians rank money as their top source of stress. Nearly twice as much as health, work, and relationships. Um, and one in three Canadians say financial stress has caused them great anxiety, depression, other mental health, depression, and other mental health issues. Yeah, man, like you get really stressed when you don't have the money you need to pay your bills. Like we all get it. But for some people, that can be really, really detrimental. It's one thing to just, you know, have that sleepless night where you can't get it together because you're not figuring out how to pay your bills tomorrow. But for a lot of people, it's seriously debilitating. And for, for those of us that suffer with anxiety disorder, worrying about paying the bills at the end of the month and the beginning of the month can be a thing, right? So for 30 days, we might be suffering with, you know, dealing, trying to deal with how we can pay our bills. Well, not only is that inflate the situation with inflation and job search and not being able to find a place you can rent for under some crazy amount of money, how do you get the help that you need, right? Young Canadians are especially affected, the survey revealed, with 45% of Canadians between the ages of 18 and 34 saying financial stress has hurt their mental health, right? 
compared to Canadians that are age 35 and up sharing the same opinion. So that's a larger percentage, but, you know, a lot of adults are dealing with it too. Worrying about money can affect uh, many facets of a person's life, spanning their sleep quality, relationships, ability to work, all that kind of stuff. You know that. Also exasperates, exasperates a person's pre-existing mental health challenges. So money and stress kind of go hand to hand. But interestingly enough, despite the budgets, despite the fact that they don't have much money, growing um, the more and more uh, Canadians, young Canadians found free and, as they say here in the article, cheap ways to take care of their mental well-being. Cheap doesn't mean not good. It's different than when you go and you buy something inexpensive and it's cheap. The quality is cheap. Online services, the free online services are not necessarily uh, not good. Many are very, very good. And you know what? We're experiencing stuff right now. In my, in our, uh, I have a program. It's called uh, Recover in Home, uh, recoverinhome.com if you're interested in looking at what it's about. Uh, and we do a lot of uh, provisioning for people who are looking for mental health support. We have a program that's down to like 15 bucks a day. Uh, and they get a ton of support. Some of that support, by the way, comes with online um, healthcare bots. It's it's an, it's um, basically um, uh, you know it's it's a um, artificial intelligence approach to helping people with mental health. And some of them are exceptional, like and and they don't pretend to be a therapist. But if you're someone who's you know in need of talking to somebody at four o'clock in the morning about how you're feeling. Some of these healthcare bots, some of the mental health ones in particular, the ones that we're looking at and, and using, um, not necessarily to provide primary care, but you know, to provide some support when there's no other support available. They answer a lot of questions. They give you little things to do, little tips on what you can do right now. Uh, they give you work, you know, little bits that you can do in a workbook. Uh, they give you some challenges in terms of how you can challenge yourself in that moment to feel better. Like it's it's an inexpensive way, almost nothing to provide someone with the ability to talk to someone right now. And often you need to understand that often that's the thing is having someone available right now. I need to talk to somebody right now, not Tuesday when their office opens or Monday when they're available or next Friday when you can possibly get an appointment. When you're feeling funky, when you're feeling that feeling inside where you're not set up right, like, you know, for me, when my anxiety is out of control, like I need to deal with it now. Right. So I have things I know how to do. I have, you know, my ability to use my, my skills, my strategies, my, you know, I have my own stuff. I don't need to reach out necessarily for help. But when I do, I need it. And I actually used one of these bots the other day just for the fun of it, not because I was in a fun place, but I just wanted to see what we were potentially predict, uh, you know, um, offering to some of our patients as, as a handholder, basically a handholder, right? So Canadians, young Canadians are specifically affected by not having the kind of money they need for support. But there's all kinds of online help these days, not bots, but real life people that are volunteering perhaps to help. Kids Help Phone is just doing a phenomenal job. They're just every time they turn around, they're adding another another part of another program, another part, another part of the puzzle to help uh, not just the kids now, but parents and some adults. If, if it's not their primary care, but there it can be available for sure. Let's see what George in uh, in Alberta has to say. Hey, George, how are you? I am about 90%, but don't tell anybody. No, nobody's listening anyway. It's just you and me and my mother. Um, yeah, but see, see what happens when you tell people you're 90%, they get all pissed off or they get jealous. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the biggest problem with today is wages 
are trying to catch up yeah. with the cost of living. Yeah. And that's driving rents. Now, we expect, we're expecting when we get our new lease agreement, we're expecting at least a $300 rent increase. Per and month? Now, I'm, I'll be 82 this year. Can wife, I, can I, George, is that per month or for the year? For, per month. Wow. Yes. So, so how do you how do you think kids are gonna? How do you think young people today, twenties and thirties, you know, um, how do you think people today, young people can are gonna be able to afford the kind of care that they need just to keep their heads on straight? They can't. And right? I don't know. I, I have no idea what the reason. I know what the reason is behind it. It's be, yeah. what the biggest reason. Now, you may think I'm a little bit off my nut, but the biggest <laughs> reason behind it is number one is people need more money to live on. Yes, and the sir. more you raise wages, the more the cost of everything goes up. And we've got, uh, now, you're not, this, I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to believe me, and I don't expect you to. I just moved to Alberta because my wife's uh, daughter and her grandchildren live here. Yeah. And I can buy Alberta beef in New Brunswick. Cheaper than you can in, in Alberta. St. John, New Brunswick, for Cheaper a dollar a kilogram more than is sold in Alberta. Well, listen, man, I appreciate that. Uh, that the message is we need better wages to keep up with the uh, the cost of living, and that's going to help people, young people, uh, pay uh, their rent and uh, keep their mental health in check. So I, I really appreciate you calling out, George, and listening and being a listener. Stick with us, and I'm sure we'll have you back on to chat some more about some other stuff. Uh, but I wanted to just leave this segment by saying that there are online capabilities available to everyone, not just young people, and it's a function of taking the time to look at them, to find them, and to uh, then to assess what you what kind of help you're looking for and 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 you know as long as someone's listening to you you're already getting the help and if that someone has a little bit of training so it's not a family member per se or a friend then you're better off right so stick with it do what you need to do don't give up because there is some help out there it's just a function of finding what works for you and uh sometimes like i said just having someone honest that you can trust to talk to for me anyway makes all the difference in the world Hey, hope you uh, enjoyed your little break there and got up and walked around, got something to drink, something to eat, kind of smoke if that's what you do, stretch your legs a little bit, and let's settle, settle in for the next hour and uh, hang out a little bit and, uh, you know, talk, share some ideas. You know, I had our friend on the other day, the other day, the other hour, his name is George from Alberta. I want to hear more from you, right? 877-399-9898. Love to hear from you. If you feel like you want to share something, send us a text message or give Leo a call and we'll get you on the air. Um, in our in our regular weekly series, part of How to Be a Champion, uh, this is the last segment of the champion segment. Uh, we'll come up with another, uh, another series next week. Uh, it'll be a surprise because I haven't figured it out yet either myself. But I want to end it off by um, end off the segment uh, or the or the the, the seven the ten week uh, segments um, about the champion's mindset, right? So every story needs a hero, right? A champion that overcomes the odds or achieves their own form of some level of greatness. 
Not all champions, though, wear gold medals or some kind of title belt, right? A champion is someone who does whatever it takes to achieve their goal to be the best that they can be. That's what this show is about, being the best that you can be. Most important of all, champion is someone who every time they fail and get knocked down, gets right back up and straight back to work. You don't need to be in the best order to be a champion. You just need to become the best that you can possibly be. A guy out, as we call it, the greatest you of all time, not the greatest of all time. So champions don't allow themselves to be stopped by intimidation. Their self-belief and determination is strong. They immediately replace negative thoughts with positive self-talk. So we often talk to ourselves, right? This negative, positive, negative and positive self-talk. It's all about that voice in our own head. You know, sometimes you do something silly and you say to yourself, ah, I'm such an idiot. That's negative self-talk versus, you know, you know, I, when I used to play uh, golf a little more competitively, I hit a bad shot and I'd say, bud, you're such an idiot, right? Not good. But when I started changing my thinking to, you know what, Yona, you could do better. That's a much more positive way, right? Or you've got this, you can do a better job of it. So it's controlling your thoughts and your emotional state under the pressure. Champions love to train, they love to improve, and they love to achieve. Another mindset of a champion is that they refuse to quit. They may sometimes lose, but they never quit. If a champion slips up and they realize that they're human, they pick themselves up, move forward, but they don't quit. Champions make a lot of mistakes. You know, it takes, it takes a lot of uh, free throws if you're a basketball player. It takes a lot of free throws or it takes a lot of three-point shots if you're into the game and understand what I'm talking about before you get them right. And sometimes you don't get them right, but you just keep shooting more shots until you get them right. It's like that with everything that we do. The more you do it the right way, the better you get at it. But you don't get to do it the right way until you've done it the wrong way. It's part of the way we grow. Making mistakes is part of the way we grow. If you don't make a mistake, it means that you're not stretching yourself far enough to get beyond your comfort zone. You know, champions don't have to be told to go to work or to get their work done. They never waver from their commitment. They never lose sight of their goal. And when it's time to do the work, whether they're performing in front of somebody or just in the gym or in the studio or wherever it is they're a champion is doing whatever, or the office or whatever, right? Stop at nothing to, re to, 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 re to re you know, reach your results, your goals, to achieve what it is you're looking for. You know, sports champions are often measured by the victories and the medals, the trophies and the belts. But the champions that I know that train hard for this kind of stuff, it's their training that makes them champions beyond the call of duty, way beyond the norm. You know, if, if cultivating a champion's mindset is not reserved solely for athletes, by the way, or for actors or people who are in the public, it's a state of mind that we can use in everyday life. That positive self-talk that we were talking about a little bit earlier, right? Telling yourself that you are a champion, that you're not going to quit, that you can overcome all obstacles. That's the mindset of a champion. They're never content with good. They're always trying to be better and better. Although there's times that good is good enough, but a champion needs to create some level of greatness for themselves. They're constantly trying to achieve more and better. Champions demonstrate tremendous grit. They have tenacity. They work hard towards their goals, maintaining their enthusiasm and their work ethic, often for many, many years before they even get a chance at the podium, so to speak. Champions know how to deal with adversity. They stay focused and optimistic when faced with an obstacle. 
Champions are relentless in their pursuit to become the best version of themselves that they can be. Although good is good, but for them, not good enough. And when the stakes are really high, they still carry their heads proud and they lead their way through and they do the best that they can. They don't just strive to be good. They strive to be their very best. I'm not using the term great because that's a, a term that's very difficult to, to really grasp for a lot of people. What does great look like? But to be your very best today, being your very best today, you're not going to be your best today because tomorrow, hopefully, you're going to be a little bit better. So today's the best you can do for today. So your very best may come tomorrow, but today, it's the best you can be. Tomorrow's another day. And what's past is past. Your achievements drive you forward with signs and feelings of success. And your mistakes need to drive you forward to go beyond those so that the mistakes become something you become better at or learn from. Being a champion is not about talent, resources, connections, wealth, or luck. It's about being resourceful, about having a work ethic, about doing whatever it takes to achieve your goals, to get the results you need, not by coasting, just on your talent, perhaps, on your special skill, but by spending hours and hours. Every time I watch golf, for example, you know, the golfers that are, are playing in these professional tournaments are the very best. Certainly that week, they're their very best. And often they perform very, very well at, at a very high level. But you know what? It doesn't seem to be good enough. They then go immediately to the practice area where they continue at their game more and more and groove their swing over and over and over so that they become not just great, but so in tune with their ability and their ability to connect their mind with their body, that they continually do it. They continually practice. They never stop. I, I hear stories about people like Tiger Woods who used to putt in his hotel room. When the lights were, you know, late at night, people were sleeping. He would putt a little bit in his in his in his hotel room just to keep his hands on a, on a, on a on a club. Champions believe in themselves. They're convinced that they can win. They're convinced that they can be the best that they can be. Even when people around them may not. They're not overtaken by other ones, others' negative thoughts. Not only do they keep a handle on their own thoughts, but keeping a handle on the thoughts that may be given to you by others that you don't take, perhaps if they're not positive. You only let positive information, you know, enter your enter your system, so to speak. Champions do most of their work behind the scenes where you don't get to see what they're doing. The champions honor their commitments to people. They stick with something. They say they're going to do it and they do it. Champions are addicted to the thrill of success. Once they taste it, they crave it so intensively that they keep working for it over and over again. Same too. I'd rather you become obsessed with your development of greatness so that you never find yourself sitting and wondering if you could be better. Because you can always be better, but today you could be great. Competitors often look for the approval of attention from others in order to feel successful. Winners feel successful when they do a great job. Champions never feel outright successful because they know the moment they achieve their goal, there's another one on the horizon. You must maintain your eagerness to grow and to learn to improve in order for this to work. Just remember, when you wake up, ask yourself, how can I be a champion today? A champion turns up on, turns up on time, mind ready, dealing with the task at hand. They never make, you know, they never make excuses for why they can't get things done. They just really work hard to make it happen. I'm hoping this was helpful for you.
and uh, helps you get to that champion state. We have a guest that's going to join us here right now. Um, shortly here, we'll play a little clip in a second here to introduce her. <clears throat> but it's it's based on an article that I was reading about the Gen Z um, group, the population. They're, they're obsessed with plastic surgery. Uh, it's hit new heights as experts report, report a spike in clients under 30. According to plastic surgeons in the U.S., they're noticing a demographic shift. Their parents are getting, patients are getting much younger American Academy of Facial Plastics and Reconstruction Surgery says Gen Z's booking cosmetics procedures at a higher rate than ever before. And 75% of the surgeons in the U.S. say they saw a spike in clients under 30 in 2022. Um, I want to ask Leo to play the clip here, introducing our guest um, that's going to join us here in just a second. Leo? But I ended up starting an Instagram account as a weight loss accountability account. Yes, you heard that right. I actually started here as a person who was losing weight and sharing a lot of before and afters and sharing a lot of macro meals and going to the gym and all of the things. I lost a bunch of weight and I got down to my goal weight and that still wasn't enough and that didn't fix all of my mental health and body image issues and eventually, a very long story, but I ended up finding this self-acceptance, self-love, body positivity and mental health community. Wow, so there you go. I'm gonna introduce her. Kenzie Brenna, thanks for joining us this evening. How are you? Hi. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, so interesting, interesting intro. Um, but you know, right off the hop, from a, you know, from a therapist perspective, I come at it from saying, you know, you, you hit it on the head. Once you get the outside fixed, it doesn't necessarily make you feel any better on the inside. I was telling somebody the other day um, that you know, I get a lot of you know, patients, younger patients, as it turns out over the last couple of years, two, three, four years, that will actually have something done. In particular, usually in some form of nasal or, or nose uh, nose surgery or augmentation of some sort. But when they see themselves, they see, see they still say to me, you know, but I still see the same nose I used to have. How do you respond mm. to that? How do you respond to that? Yeah, I think that that's illuminating something that not so many of us really figure out is that our body image is internal, right? Like uh, it doesn't exactly. really, right? Yeah. It doesn't necessarily get fixed once we lose weight or have some type of surgical augmentation. It's actually an internal perception of ourselves and it's largely tied to our self-esteem and our self-esteem can be dictated by so many different factors in our life, in our lives. And so when, if someone you know, if I was talking to someone and they said, I had a nose job last year and you know, I thought I was going to feel a little bit more confident and I did for a while and now I'm just back to feeling not good again. And, you know, I would say that that one, that's very, very, very normal. And right. it's really interesting for someone to watch their insecurities migrate from maybe it's their nose to their chest or from their chest to their tummy or from their tummy yeah. to something else. And right. so I really, I think that it's touching on the fact that we are all searching for acceptance, belonging, love, all of those things from our community. And we oftentimes think that it's going to be based off of how we look and then we change how we look and then we still feel like something's missing. And I just think it's a it's a greater problem that it's never going to just be the nose. It's never just going to be one part, exactly. you know. 
Why, why, why do you think, I mean, I have no idea how old you are and I, I'm not sure you want to tell me, but um, why this particular, why are we seeing young people, you know, um, you know, why are young people now looking to augment themselves perhaps more so than let's say folks in their, you know, forties, fifties and so on. Is, is it, is it they're realizing that it's now capable, they're capable of doing this kind of work or what's, you know, where's this coming from? Is this all this insecurity and desire for change? Is it tied to the media? Is it tied to, you know, the social activities? Give us an idea. Um, I'm sure how you fought through your own perhaps, but give us an idea where so much insecurity is coming at such a young age. Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so I'm 33 for everyone listening and for you, Yona. Um, I'm very happy to share my age. I know not everybody is, but I'm very happy to. Um, I really think that there is a really there there is such a massive link between social media and body image slash body confidence. And yeah. I think what's different about millennials and Gen Z is the amount of information that we consume on a daily basis is vastly different than previous generations. And we, I was very lucky that I was able to grow up and I was able to play in fields and like run around in a forest and, you know, like spend a lot of time in grass and spend <laughs> lots of time outside. And it wasn't until I was a teenager, like in my late teens, that really people were getting into Facebook and Instagram wasn't created yet. But now the younger generation and, and millennials as well, we have, we look at people, we look at so many people on in such an insane amount on a daily basis. And we're just watching and looking at people and watching ourselves through filters. And that is a new phenomenon, watching people speak into a phone and then have it translated through a filter. So have, so these filters will, will alter someone's nose, alter someone's lips. They will make skin appear smoother. They will make skin appear lighter. They will make your eyes appear a little bit bigger. So faces are just distorted just based right. on these filters in general. And the amount of people that we're watching on a daily basis and the amount of filters that are attached to them are actually distorting of what we actually think we look like. And we don't have a proper baseline anymore of this is what is acceptable to look like. On top of that, our cameras actually pick up on stuff that the human eye doesn't. So when we see a photo of ourselves, we might zoom in to that photo and think, oh my gosh, like, you know, my skin is so bad and everybody's looking at this or everybody can see my wrinkles or I didn't realize that I had those many dark spots. But what people aren't factoring in is that a camera has a lens. That lens can distort an image. It picks up on light. The human eye is not, it's exactly. it's different than a camera, yeah. right? And yeah. so there, there are a couple of the factors here. So I really think that it, honing down on social media being a massive influence and cameras and the way that we are spending so much time on our phones. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, people used to say that, you know, you're on the camera, it makes you heavier, it makes you thinner. If you wear this, you wear that. You know, fortunately, I do radio, I can wear whatever I want. Uh, we've got time, right. time for just, we have time for a quick answer because we've got to be out of here at 2620 or my boss is going to kill me. Uh, and then we'll have mm -hmm. you come back after the break. But real quick, anybody tried to pursue you or pressure you into getting some kind of uh, procedure done and maybe you decided not to? Are you happy you did or didn't? Anything like that ever come your way? 
Mm, yeah, great question. Um, I went in for a facial once to a medical spa and I went in yeah. for a facial and as the facial was ending, she said, you know, you would look, you would look a lot more, you would look more awake if you had more filler under your eye. And filler is a non-surgical type of procedure. So you would, yeah. you wouldn't be going under anesthetic, but what that would be basically be doing is filling up your under eyes. So that way they're not appearing so dark. And I said, oh, I honestly never even really looked at that before. And she said like, yeah, you know, and she took some photos of my face to show me. And that was a really weird, <laughs> weird yeah, encounter because so. I wasn't asking for feedback on my dark circles on how tired I looked. I was just coming in for a facial. The lines on my body do not define me. The bumps on my body do not define me. The way my body looks does not define me. But what does define me? My dreams, my hopes, my values, and my ethics. That's the voice of my guest, Kenzie Brenna. Kenzie, how are you? Still here? Oh, I'm great. Yes, yes, great. I'm great. How are you doing, Yuna? I'm good. So Kenzie is a body positive influencer and host of the podcast Conversations with Kenzie, something you should definitely be listening to. Thank you for continuing to hang out with us and uh, be a part of the show. So Kenzie, um, is there a lack of positive female role models, do you think, in the media contributing to the trend of the Gen Z population, uh, that group of folks? Um you think that's contributing to why a lot of young women in particular are looking to have things done because they want to look more like so-and-so? That is such a great question, Glenn. Um, to be honest, I Yona. haven't been asked that question. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, Yo Yona. Sorry, Yona. Um, Glenn's sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that ha that's not a question that I have been asked uh, so recently because I want to say that there's actually an uh, – a wonderful array of very popular women who come from all different backgrounds of all different sizes of all different races and ethnicities. And um, I, I think that we need to continue to champion those stories. I also would say that it's not, it's not enough for us to just have very distant role models. I think really think we need to be looking at the elders in our lives and be looking at people that are in our day-to-day -day community and be looking up to them and, and, you know, not so much um, idolizing strangers that are quite distant from us, even though that, yes, I think that that could be a great source of inspiration and I don't want to deny that. And, you know, I have my role models as well, but really looking to our sisters, our mothers, our aunts, our grandmothers, um, people in our lives that can actually that we can look at um in person and actually yeah. see them and find inspiration in them interesting because that's a great segue to my next question you must be reading my notes <laughs> so do you think so i i got a lot of I, a lot of folks that i deal with you know uh, doesn't you know age age seems to be somewhat irrelevant but let's take the young ones in particular younger the younger folks and i ask them you know the one of the first people questions I ask in an assessment interview is, so did you grow up in a house that made you feel good about yourself or grew up in a house that made you feel not so good about yourself? And that usually gives mm -hmm. me an indication of what kind of background I'm dealing with. <clears throat> and often you hear stories, like even in my own community, uh, in my own family, you'd hear something like, oh, you need to put on some more weight. You look too skinny. Or, you know, you need to lose mm -hmm. a few pounds. You look too heavy. Parents saying this to people, grandparents saying this to people, aunts and uncles, cousins, relatives, sisters, brothers. It's not nice. And it leads to some really bad stuff. Do you believe a lot of this stuff starts at home? Mm, absolutely. I think, yes, of course. I think it does start at home. Absolutely. What was it like for you? 
Yeah, um, I definitely had a mom that had her own insecurities. Um, and in, you know, this is a conversation that I've had online, but, you know, my mom would kind of point out the fact that um, she might have been insecure about her thighs or the way that um, she looked in certain areas. And then yeah. a couple of years later, she would say, oh, you have my body. And so I oh. subconsciously began to yeah. kind of understand that I should be insecure about this because she's very insecure about this. And because she does these things to erase herself in these ways or to change herself in these ways, I also want to be doing that because I want to be attractive and desirable. I want to be chosen. I want to belong. And it definitely started at home for me. But then at a certain point, I think we all outgrow home in a way. And that's when I think we look for home externally. We start looking for it in different communities. We start looking for it online. And that's when online stuff just influences you much more than home. When you were young, when you started this thing out and you started to become a body positive influencer and be involved in, um, by the way, how many people follow you? Mm -hmm. um, I have over 300,000 on Instagram and I have over 70,000 on TikTok. You're saving a lot of lives, young lady. <laughs> Thanks, Yona. You know, you know that, right? Okay. So still, um, you still get hate messages. People kind of sending, I, I, my, my producer said you had a history of people talk, you know, sending you messages that weren't nice, uh, strangers in particular. Is that still happening? Or are you getting a lot of support and a, and a lot of positive comments now to over, overshadow the, the negative stuff? Mm -hmm. Um, I do get both. Um, I definitely do get people who don't like me, um, based on the stuff that I talk about or based on my body. I definitely do get those messages, but I really try to focus on the positive ones. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, do you like what you see? Yes, I do. That's a great question. I, I do. That, I do. <laughs> that's you know when I, I I have a we have a series of different treatment programs that we provide in my in my other life. Uh, one of them's a residential treatment center, and uh, it's called the Farm in Stouffville. And you know I would often walk through the building and say to people, "So, do you look at yourself in the mirror today?" And they'd look at me like mm. I had three eyes, and, I'd, and they'd say, "Yeah." <laughs> I said, "Do you like what? You, did you like what you see?" So the ones mm. that said, "Yeah," you know, I'm start I'm starting to. Um, because you and I both know it's not, you know, you can wear the nicest clothes. You can have the most, you know, fabulous makeup job. Your hair can look amazing, you know, have, you know, beautiful, you know, jewelry on to accent to everything that you're wearing. But if you're not, you know, like we said in the, in the, in the, in the beginning, when you look at yourself, if you still see that, you know, that insecure, you know, for me, if I, you know, that insecure little guy with bad skin, you're always mm. going to see that little insecure guy with bad skin until you work it through. How long did it take you? Or if you're still, I guess you're still in process, but how, how long mm. has it been for, for you to get to a place where you can answer a question like, do you like yourself when you look in the mirror and the answer being so positive? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, thanks for sharing. I, 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 I resonate and, um, uh, it takes a while, honestly, it's not a quick fix. You, when you commit to, you know, kind of getting better, working on yourself, that's like a forever thing. And for me, it's been years. It's been about four or five years now of being um, in therapy and working on myself and being parts of mm -hmm. different communities and just, mm -hmm. just expanding my world to just be beyond what I look like you know, like getting involved in community, like be actually being in the world. And it's so easy to just hyper-focus on how we look and be super worried about that. But there's so much more going on than just that. And so for me, it, it's, it's, um, 
it's multiple things, but it's been about, yeah, five years of working on myself to get to a place of either neutrality or a place of acceptance and love. But I definitely don't spiral into the, the, um, the self-hate or the shame, um, or feeling really disconnected to my body the same way that, um, I used to growing up. I'm talking to Kenzie Brenna, body positive influencer and hoster, host, hoster, host of the podcast concert, uh, conversations with Kenzie. Uh, one quick question before I let you go, and hopefully we'll we'll have you come back on and share some more another time. Um, you've been doing this. What's next for you? W- where does this go? What What's a big win for you? What's that look like? Mm. I would love for there to be some sort of body image conversation that is placed in the health curriculum in Canada. So I'd love to work with districts on making something that is age appropriate and engaging and educational to just like talk to people about that foundation to build in as kids. So then that way we're not adults trying to reverse everything that happened, you know, trying to build that foundation. Um, I think that would be really, really, really cool to start. And also just here having conversations like this with you, um, having more conversations in person and just continuing to build bridges where there's walls um, with ourselves and with other people. Um, big, big fan now, just so you know, I'm a big fan. Uh, I'm talking to Kenzie Brenna <laughs> and, uh, we're talking, we're talking about uh, body image, body positive thinking. She is a body positive influencer. I can see how and why I'm definitely influenced and the host of the mm-hmm. podcast conversations with Kenzie. Uh, thanks for joining us this evening, uh, Kenzie and uh, best of luck to you. 